As we've seen repeatedly, peace doesn't seem to last for long, especially as we are pulled in opposite directions by the enticings of the Holy Spirit or the pulls and tugs of the natural man. The peace that reigned at the end of Mosiah 29 was interrupted by the coming of Nehor at the beginning of Alma chapter 1. And the peace that reigns at the end of Alma 1 is interrupted by the coming of Amlicai at the beginning of Alma chapter 2. It's now the fifth year of the reign of the judges. There is a contention among the people because Amlicai, a very cunning man, yea, a wise man as to the wisdom of the world, he being after the order of the man that slew Gideon by the sword. You see in Amlicai something of a combination, it seems, between Sherem and Nehor. He's after the order of Nehor. Popularity is what he's after through vain promises. And at the same time, he's like Sherem in that he's a wise man as to the wisdom of the world. Either way, they combine in his cunning. As he's trying to find a way to accomplish ends using means that are not in harmony with the teachings of God. In Amlicai's case, verse 2, by his cunning, he wants to draw away people. And so he does. His goal ultimately is to be a king over the people. He wants to reverse the changes that Mosiah had instituted. And this was alarming to the people of the church in verse 3. It was alarming to anyone that didn't go after Amlicai's persuasion. So inside or outside of the church, anyone that preferred democracy to monarchy, this was a concern. It went against their law that had been established by the voice of the people. But in verse 4, Amlicai, being a wicked man, wanted to deprive them of their rights and privileges. In fact, he wanted to destroy the church once and for all. So the people put it to a vote. Again, if we're going to try things by the voice of the people, as Mosiah encouraged, then let's do this. We have a real opportunity to test the system. They do. There is much dispute and wonderful contentions one with another, but they assemble together, cast in their voices concerning the matter, and lay it before the judges. Verse 7, the voice of the people comes out against Amlicai, so he's not their king. And there was much joy in the hearts of everyone who was against him. However, Amlicai seemed to be going to the voice of the people only in hopes that it would come out in his favor. The fact that it didn't, didn't change his goal, his intentions, it only changed the process. The ends were the same. The means, take it or leave it. The means of democratic election didn't work, then let's just change the means to pursue the same ends. His followers in verse 9 gather themselves together. They repudiate the majority arrived at decision and consecrate Amlicai to be their king regardless. Now that he's their king, he commands his people to take up arms against their brethren so that he can subject them to him as well. This would be rule by the minority, since rule by the majority had failed to bring him what he wanted. Thus he chooses to win by power what he couldn't win by persuasion, precisely the reverse of what King Mosiah had envisioned. Mosiah had the power, but wanted to persuade. Amlicai couldn't persuade, so he wanted to exercise power. A massive battle ensues that takes up the rest of chapter 2. Alma and the Nephites against Amlicai and the Amlicites. In verse 16, Alma, in his political role, takes the head of the army. That's clear in that verse. Now, Alma being the chief judge and the governor of the people of Nephi, he's not wearing his religious hat. He's not coming forth as chief priest. He's chief judge and governor. And in that role, he goes up with his people 
at the head of his armies against the Amalekites. He goes with his captains and chief captains, not with his priests and teachers. I imagine in many instances they were the same people. But this is a political battle, not a religious one. It reminds me, a friend of mine was sent to Knoxville, Tennessee the same year I was sent to Nashville, Tennessee to help run the Seminary and Institute program. And the man that he replaced in Knoxville had been in charge of Seminary and Institute, but had also been the stake president at the same time. And so when he moved, he was released from both positions. And two people came to take his place. A new stake president was called, and this colleague of mine went to go run the Institute program there. And one of the first orders of business that those two conducted was getting together and saying, when our predecessor was here, we often couldn't tell which role he was fulfilling. Is he saying this as stake president or is he saying this as institute director? So let's take his one hat and make sure we clearly subdivide it into the two hats that we will wear separately. Well, here Alma is wearing his political hat. The battle rages and in verse 18, thankfully the Lord is on the Nephite side and strengthens their hands. This sounds a lot like Limhi's battles going forth in the strength of the Lord. In verse 21, after one day of fighting, Alma then sends spies to follow the remnant of the Amalekites that had retreated so he could know of their plans and their plots so he could guard against them and preserve his people. Interesting that having warriors isn't enough. You also need spies. It's not enough to fight the Lord's battles. You also need to see the enemy's moves. And so I am grateful for seers with vision far beyond my own. This is the difference between a Joshua in the valley fighting and a Moses up on the mountaintop. Both types are needed. What those spies see not only astonishes them, but also strikes them with much fear. Because as they explain in verse 24, the camp of the Amlicites ends up merging with a numerous host of Lamanites. And more Lamanites is the last thing that Nephites need. The battles therefore continue. And in verse 28, thankfully, the Nephites continue to be strengthened by the hand of the Lord. They prayed mightily that that would be the case. But notice the specifics of what they prayed for. They prayed to God that he would deliver them out of the hands of their enemies. This is a defensive prayer rather than an offensive one. They're not praying for their enemies' destruction. They're praying for their own deliverance. And the Lord heard those cries and strengthened them. This isn't just Nephites versus Amlicites. This ends up being Alma versus Amlici, mano a mano. In verse 29, they fight face to face. Alma, much more like King Benjamin, who led his armies into battle, than like King Noah, who led his people in retreat. Verse 30, Alma's personal prayer is much like the people's collective one. He was a man of God. He was exercised with much faith, and he cried, O Lord, have mercy and spare my life. Again, defensive rather than offensive. He's not praying against Amlici. He's praying for himself. Lord, be merciful. Spare my life. Why? So that I can be an instrument in thy hands to save and preserve this people. It wasn't even self-interest as much as a desire to continue serving others that he was praying for deliverance. And that prayer, likewise, was answered. God strengthened him insomuch that he slew Amlici with the sword. He then turned to the king of the Lamanites to try to continue the battle, and yet that king fled and sent his guards to fight with Alma instead. 
As we'll see soon, Alma was wounded, but thankfully he survived the fight. Chapter 2 then ends with the aftermath of the battle. Victory for the Nephites, defeat for the Lamanites and Amlicites. But before I move on to chapter 3, can I just draw your attention one more time to something we've seen repeatedly already? A parallel between this story and the war in heaven? Lucifer as the counterfeit Christ, Nehor with all of his counterfeits compared to all the truths at the hands of Alma or Gideon? Or here, Amlicite versus Alma, types of Lucifer and Jehovah? How's this for a few parallels? Remember, Amlicite was a cunning man, wise as to worldly wisdom, who wanted to be king over the people. Sound like Lucifer? An angel in authority in the presence of God that wanted the Father's throne? Wanted to rule over them? This was not according to law in Amlicite's case. It wasn't according to the Father's plan in premortality. Amlicite wanted to deprive the church of their rights and privileges. Lucifer wanted to remove our agency. There was much dispute and wonderful contentions among the people, just as there was a war in heaven. The Nephites cast in their voices, and Amlicite was not chosen king. The war in heaven resulted in a victory of the Father's plan at the expense of Lucifer's. And sure enough, among the Nephites, there was joy among those who sided with Alma, and there was anger among those that sided with Amlici. The war in heaven resulted in similar joy and anger. The losers here made Amlici their king anyway, and the third of the hosts of heaven that followed Lucifer basically did likewise. They then took up arms against their brethren, Sure enough, the war in heaven continues to rage on here on earth in an effort to subject the Nephites to the authority of Amlici, just as Lucifer is continuing to try to subject us to his will, the bondage of sin. The people of God prepare to meet their enemies and appoint leaders, just like the kingdom of God is set up on the earth to do the same, and yet Amlici sets up his own kingdom. And there we have the kingdom of the world. Alma goes at the head of his armies as Amlici leads his, just as Christ and Lucifer continue to marshal their forces in this ongoing battle. The people of God are strengthened by God, and Alma eventually wins. He and his counterpart have very different purposes in fighting, as do Christ and Satan. Chapter 3 then pauses the conflict only briefly. It will continue again shortly with an aside about the Amlicites themselves that's very important, especially as it pertains to the curse and the mark that we often associate with the Lamanites. You see in verse 4 of chapter 3, it says that the Amlicites were distinguished from the Nephites, for they had marked themselves with red in their foreheads after the manner of the Lamanites. Nevertheless, they had not shorn their heads like uh, unto the Lamanites. I guess they wanted to look like Lamanites, but they liked their hair a little too much. But notice the detail we see already. There's a distinguishing mark. In verse 5, it continues to describe those Lamanites. It says they were shorn and they were naked, other than a skin that was girded about their loins. That and a whole lot of armor girded about them. And a whole lot of armaments, bows, arrows, stones, slings, and so forth. I think that's a powerful symbolic description of Lamanites also. Their heads are shorn. Shaved heads. Now, often in the Old Testament, hair was symbolic of authority. You see Samson and his his luscious locks. 
as a sign of the covenant and the strength that came because of keeping those covenants. Or in his case, the strength that was lost out of breaking those covenants. You see Absalom wanting to usurp authority from his father and all of the hair on his head that is symbolic of that. It's actually a more likely interpretation of those teenagers mocking Elisha, saying, go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head, and the she-bears come and maul them. This is worse than a bunch of rowdy teenagers making fun of someone for being follically challenged. More likely, this was a group of people questioning the authority of Elisha. For all we know, Elisha may have had a beautiful head of hair, but for them saying, go up, thou bald head, It's akin to saying, you have no authority over us. We don't have to do what you say. In this case, if these Lamanites have shaved their heads, it's not just a loss of hair. It's a rejection of hair. It's a repudiation of authority. We need none. We want none. And then they're being naked other than this leather loincloth. From the very beginning of the Old Testament, clothing meant to cover our nakedness was symbolic of the atonement of Christ. Lamanites are those who want nothing to do with the authority of God and who want to remain completely uncovered by the atonement of Christ, fully exposed to the demands of justice, not thinking they'll ever have to answer for them. And as far as their other clothing, all it is is armor and armaments, a military, a bloodthirsty people. Now, verse 6, we get back to this idea of marks and curses. Verse 6, the skins of the Lamanites were dark according to the mark which was set upon their fathers, which was a curse upon them because of their transgression and rebellion. Now we need to be very careful here because we're so quick to associate in our minds the mark of dark skin with the curse of God, and we shouldn't. Now this verse seems to suggest that they're synonymous when it says there was a mark set upon them which was a curse. So mark, curse, same thing. That verse, verse 6, is the exception to the rule. The rule is that the Nephite prophets, writers, were typically very careful to distinguish between the mark and the curse. This time, perhaps simply out of carelessness, they seem to be conflated. The mark which was a curse. Now there is a connection between the two. But to say they are synonymous is incorrect. And what we see here in Alma 3, combined with what we see originally in 2 Nephi chapter 5, when the Lamanites and Nephites originally split, these two together help clarify that the mark, namely darker skin color, is not a curse from God. You see, I remember as a greeny missionary, the first person that joined the church that we had taught was this incredible ex-professional wrestler from the Dominican Republic. His name was Herminio, but he went by Charlie. I was grateful that that was easier to say. Wrestling in the Dominican Republic, this was not some kind of glamorized WWE. This was people fighting to put food on the table in a barbed wire cage. Charlie had massive gashes, scars where flesh had been ripped out of his biceps, which were enormous, by the way. But he was the sweetest man. He worked in an old folks home feeding little old ladies, shaving little old men. And he was a great seeker of truth. We taught him the gospel and he loved it. Decided to join the church, was baptized. We went to visit him shortly after his baptism and he'd been studying the Book of Mormon. But he looked at me sadly at the beginning of our discussion and he said, am I a second class citizen because of the color of my skin? He had just read Second Nephi chapter 5. 
where it sure looks like Laman and Lemuel are cursed with dark skin. And Charlie wondered about the color of his skin, which was incredibly dark. We need to be careful to avoid the potential mistake of conflating mark and curse, like it seems like was done in verse 6. The rest of this chapter does a much better job of keeping the two very separate. So keep an eye out for the two as distinguishable from one another. In verse 7, their brethren sought to destroy them, therefore they were cursed. Okay, that's one instance. They were cursed. With what? We'll see in a moment. And the Lord God set a mark upon them. There seems to be, I mean, obviously a relationship between the two, but there seem to be two separate acts. He, he, God cursed them and he set a mark upon them. Verse 8, this was done that their seed might be distinguished from the seed of their brethren, so that the Lord God could preserve his people so they would not mix and believe in incorrect traditions, which would prove their destruction. Now we saw that hinted at back in verse 4. The Amlicites were distinguished from the Nephites with a mark. So the mark seems to exist in order to distinguish people. Because as is so often the case, when righteousness and wickedness mix, as much as righteousness hopes that the wickedness will change, often it's the reverse, with the righteous becoming more like the wicked. That was the concern here. Now in verse 9, it says that whosoever did mingle his seed with that of the Lamanites did bring the same curse upon his seed. The same one. Whatever curse that happened to be, whoever mingled with the seed would receive the same one. Verse 10, whosoever suffered himself to be led away by the Lamanites was called under that head, and there was a mark set upon him. Now in verse 9 and verse 10, prepare yourself. You're about to be haunted by the ghost of English teachers past to see if we can remember the difference between a definite and an indefinite article. Buckle up. Verse 9, it came to pass that whosoever did mingle his seed with that of the Lamanites did bring the same curse upon his seed. Now that's a definite article, the, as if it's definite. This is the curse. In fact, it's the same curse. There's only one. And whoever mixes and mingles with the Lamanites will receive that same definite curse. As opposed to verse 10, whosoever suffered himself to be led away by the Lamanites was called under that head, and there was a mark set upon him. The indefinite article. A mark. It doesn't have to be definite, this specific one, but there's going to be a mark so that you can tell the difference, a way to distinguish between the two on which side they're on. You see this differentiation back where it all begins in 2 Nephi chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 20 Wherefore, the word of the Lord was fulfilled, which he spake unto me, saying that inasmuch as they will not hearken unto thy words, they shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. And behold, they were cut off from his presence. And he had caused the cursing to come upon them. Now, he's just defined what the cursing is, to be cut off from the presence of the Lord. Now, they ended up cursing themselves. They abandoned God and were cut off from his presence, cut off from prophets, priesthood, temple, scriptures, all of the things that Nephi kept with him. Back to 21, this cursing came upon them, a sore cursing because of their iniquity. They had hardened their hearts against him. Now, to keep them separate, he continues, they had become like unto a flint, wherefore, as they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people, the Lord God did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. Now we see a mark placed upon them. And that mark 
was simply to not be enticing to a different group. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that one skin color is more enticing than another, or one is better than another, more righteous than another. It's simply that difference often is what keeps people apart. People tend to congregate around likeness rather than unlikeness. So the mark here was simply for that purpose, to make a difference that would not be enticing in either direction. By the way, I'm grateful to live in a day where outward differences no longer seem to be a matter of enticing or unenticing. However, and this is a key point, inner differences truly do make someone unenticing or enticing. Mixed race marriages are common and beautiful. When one of the first African-American sister missionaries returned from her mission, she specifically sought out President Spencer W. Kimball to ask him about mixed race marriages. And President Kimball reassured her, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. But what I do find interesting is the challenges that exist, not in mixed race marriages, which like I said, are beautiful, but mixed standard marriages. Not even just mixed faith, but mixed righteousness versus wickedness. Opposites can attract in so many beautiful ways, but they seldom do spiritually. Spiritually speaking, we tend to gravitate towards people that are like us. Again, I'm not talking specific faith, denominational differences aside. I'm talking about faith in general versus lack of faith. That's a hard marriage to maintain. When we recognize things that are not enticing about others, thankfully we're getting past the external indicators. But the internal ones are still there and ought to be. Verse 22 continues, Thus saith the Lord God, I will cause that they shall be loathsome unto thy people, save they shall repent of their iniquities. Repentance is what eliminates the curse of being cut off from the presence of God. You've crossed the chasm, you've bridged the gap, you've come back. But notice 23. 2 Nephi 5.23 ties in perfectly with Alma chapter 3. Cursed shall be the seed of him that mixeth with their seed. For they shall be cursed even with the same cursing. There's that definite article again. Verse 24. Because of that cursing, cut off from God, they became an idle people. There's the idleness, idleness parallel we keep seeing. Full of mischief and subtlety. Skin color has nothing to do with idleness or mischief or subtlety, but having God with you or not definitely is an indicator of that. Now, this is where it all begins. And again, there seems to be this separation between a mark for matter of enticement. In this case, it happened to be a darker skin color. And then there's the curse, the curse, being cut off from the presence of God, which has these deleterious effects upon us spiritually which can be reversed through repentance and which is common to everyone who rejects God. Cutting themselves off from God's presence is always the curse and it's the same curse across the board. In this case, the curse and a mark are not the same thing. Now, the next time you kind of see it hinted at is in Jacob chapter 3. And this time, again, it seems to suggest that like, wait, are they the same thing? Because in Jacob chapter 3, verse 5, it says, The Lamanites your brethren, whom ye hate because of their filthiness and the cursing which hath come upon their skins. Oh, is that the same thing? The cursing which hath come upon their skins. 
<sighs> so are we back to that? Skin color is a curse or a sign of cursedness? In this case, you have to watch for context. It seems that in Jacob chapter 3, Jacob is pushing back against a certain sense of racism that has crept in among his people. That's what he said in 5. You hate them because of their skin color, which you associate with filthiness and a curse. It's like in your mind, you've allowed these two things, two separate but related things, to just conflate and become one and the same. And that's not how it should be. Because to you racist Nephites, verse 8, I fear that unless you repent, their skins will be whiter than yours when you're brought to stand before the throne of God. You think skin color matters? Well, then prepare yourself to look darker in God's eyes than anybody else. Skin color has nothing to do with this. It's whether or not they're with God. And they're not. But are you? Your behavior makes me wonder, he would say. In verse 9, he cuts to the chase. Revile no more against them because of the darkness of their skins. See, that's what you're after. You have a problem with the darkness of their skin. You were supposed to have a problem with the wickedness of their soul. And skin color, as simply a mark, one among a million possibilities, was meant to help you see on the outside what you were supposed to more clearly perceive on the inside. And that's what's supposed to caution you away from them. Sadly, in your case, you racist and wicked Nephites, you're repelled by a mark, but you're not repelled by the curse. Because you're bringing it upon yourselves. You're more like the Lamanites on the inside. In fact, you're worse than the Lamanites on the inside. That's what he says in this chapter. The Lamanites are better than you because they love their families and are chaste. We saw that throughout those great escape chapters at the end of Mosiah, where the Lamanites seemed to respect women and children in ways that Nephites did not. You, think, you Nephites think you're better on the outside when really you're worse on the inside. And it's the inside that matters. The outside was simply a way to try to help you see past. And unfortunately, that's all you're seeing. It actually makes me wonder. Fast forward a couple hundred years when you meet Samuel the Lamanite, who would have had darker skin than most of his fair-skinned Nephite audience. And yet, who was wicked and who was righteous? With the conversion of the anti-Nephi-Lehites, you have an amazing group of darker-skinned but greater righteousness even among the Nephites. If you were a child growing up on Samuel the Lamanite's day, what would the mark have been to distinguish so they wouldn't be enticing? In that case, would it have been light skin? Like those wicked Nephites? Steer clear of them. Don't mix with them because you'll end up with the wicked traditions that they're developing. We've got to learn to see inside, to discern. And we still get tripped up over outside signs when we're supposed to be looking for internal realities. Now, perhaps you're still unsure. We've seen some evidence of a separation, a distinction between the curse and a mark. But then there's other, a couple of examples of, well, a cursing upon their skin. Is it, so is it different or is it the same? If only there was a, some kind of an experiment we could conduct to be sure. Well, the Amlicites provide us with that opportunity. Because what we already saw in 2 Nephi 5 and in Alma 3 was that if anyone combines with the Lamanites, then they receive the same curse. Now, if the curse is dark skin, what would we expect to happen to the Amlicites when they mix with them? 
we'd expect them to have darker skin just like the Lamanites. But that's not what happens. You see in Alma 3 verse 13, let's return again to the Amlicites. Let's get back to the story at hand. They also had a mark set upon them. Yea, they set the mark upon themselves, even a mark of red upon their foreheads. Thus the word of God is fulfilled. For these are the words which he said to Nephi. Behold, the Lamanites have I cursed, and I will set a mark on them. Even verb tense distinguishes them. I have cursed, past tense, act one is done, and I will set a mark on them. Future tense, has not yet happened, about to. I cursed, I will mark, and, I will, and it will just be a mark, that they and their seed may be separated from thee and thy seed. It's just about distinction, separation. And except they repent of their wickedness and turn to me, then they'll, they'll remain distinct. Verse 15, again, I will set a mark upon him that mingleth his seed with thy brethren, that they may be cursed also. That same curse of being separate from God. 16, again, I will set a mark upon him that fighteth against thee and thy seed. Verse 18, the Amlicites knew not that they were fulfilling the words of God when they began to mark themselves, not with darker skin, but just with a red mark in the forehead. But they'd come out in open rebellion against God. Therefore, it was expedient that the curse should fall upon them. The curse of being separate from God. They both cursed and marked themselves. They separated themselves from Nephi and his people, just like Laman and Lemuel had generations before. In fact, notice what they were separating themselves from back in verse 11 and 12. Nephites were those that wouldn't believe in Lamanite traditions. Traditions of hatred that we saw in an earlier chapter. That they were wronged and wronged and wronged, so they're wroth and wroth and wroth. Remember that? Nephites believed the records that they had brought out of Jerusalem on the brass plates. They believed in the tradition of their fathers, which were correct. Traditions of faith and repentance and covenant making and keeping. They believed in the commandments and they kept them. That's how you can tell a Nephite. You can distinguish them by their scripture, by their beliefs and behaviors, by their obedience to the commandments of God. The Amlicites had separated themselves from all of that. They had cut themselves off from the presence of God. They were cursed with the same curse that fell upon Laman and Lemuel. And as an added separate measure, there was some distinguishing feature. In this case, a mark they placed upon themselves. Verse 19 summarizes the thought, I would that you should see that they brought upon themselves the curse. There's only one. And even so doth every man that is cursed bring upon himself his own condemnation. Here, 2,000 plus years later, a lot has changed. We care much less about skin color, and I'm so grateful for that. We still need to care about the softness and the hardness of our hearts. We need to care about if we are cut off from God, and if we are willing or unwilling to repent to change that fact. All of us separate ourselves from him. But hopefully we choose to repent and reconcile. In our day there are marks as well. And more often than not, we tend to act more like Amlicites than Lamanites in terms of marking ourselves instead of having God impose some kind of artificial identifier. And before you get too specific on what those external visible markers might be. I would challenge each of us to look deeper. 
that truly what allows us to distinguish the righteous from the wicked is the gift of discernment because looks can be deceiving. As we learn from Samuel and the boy David back in 1 Samuel 16, don't look on the outward appearance. Do your best to look upon the heart. I really hope that this makes sense and that it helps a little. This is some difficult material to digest, especially with such a long history, both inside and outside the church, of race relations. I think, sadly, much of LDS history, and on a bigger scale, so much of Christian history, has suffered from a lack of clarity in understanding the distinction that was supposed to be made. And instead, we jump to conclusions and just assume that the curse of Cain or the mark of Ham have to do with external indicators of conflating curse and mark and thinking it's all the same thing. At failing to arrive at what King Mosiah tried so hard to arrive at, an equality among all people, of the kind of care for all, an equal consecration that Alma aimed at with his people, male or female, black or white, bond or free, inside the church, outside the church. Nephi says it best at the end of 2 Nephi 26, that male or female, bond or free, black or white, Jew and Gentile, all are alike unto God. The only real difference he makes is between the righteous and the wicked. And even that is with always arms outstretched to welcome the wicked home as soon as they will repent and thereby remove the curse that they have brought upon themselves. The only unfailing mark, really, that we could ever count on is the presence or absence of the Holy Ghost. The presence or absence of the hand of God working in a person's life and if they are willing or unwilling to let that work proceed. That's the only mark we should really be looking for. And always with the understanding that curse can be lifted the moment someone turns to the Lord. Again, I really pray that that makes sense. Chapter 3 then ends with another massive battle between the Nephites and the combined forces of the Lamanites and Amlicites. And once again, as we saw in chapter 2, the Nephites win. And then the final two verses, we get a little bit of moralizing, whether Alma wrote it directly or whether Mormon is abridging this later on. In 26 and 27, rather than speak of casualties and conquests, we speak of souls and eternal rewards that thousands and tens of thousands of souls were sent to the eternal world. This is no longer mere military statistics. This is the plan of salvation at work. They were brought to the eternal world that they might reap their rewards according to their works, good, bad, eternal happiness, or eternal misery, according to the spirit which they listed to obey. For every man receiveth wages of him whom he listeth to obey. We choose, and we reap the consequences. That's what every chapter we've studied so far today has been teaching us. Chapter 4 then proceeds with the aftermath of this great war. In verse 1, there were no contentions nor wars. Perhaps they were sick and tired of being sick and tired. Verse 2, they were afflicted 
because of all of their great loss. In three, because of their afflictions, they began to mourn, believing that the judgments of God had come upon them because of their wickedness. Now they're waking themselves up to repent, right? They were awakened to a remembrance of their duty. As a result, verse 4, they began to establish the church more fully. This is the positive pull of the pride cycle. Really, there's two sides to the pride cycle, depending on which direction you face. I actually read a beautiful comment that one of you posted about the cycle is sometimes a negative term because it seems to make things so naturally like, well, yeah, there's just, you're on it. It's like the water cycle and it just happens no matter what. No, they described gravitational fields and magnetic forces. And I, I love the way they described this. Really, there are two halves, two sides of the pride cycle. There's the side of righteousness that the Lord's in charge of, and there's the side of wickedness that the adversary's in charge of. And our choice is deciding which direction we're going to, the positive or negative pull in this magnetic field. Because even if I'm down, if I'm down in destruction, but turn to the Lord, then destruction pulls, then the cycle works in my behalf. It pulls me towards humility. I've chosen the Lord. And by choosing that, switching polarities, I'm now on the Lord's side of the cycle. And my location on the bottom end. If the top end is prosperity and the bottom end is poverty or blessedness and cursedness, much or little, whatever the case might be. Once I switch this way, then I go from having nothing but being destroyed over it, Satan's side, to still having nothing, but I'm humble about it. I've turned to the Lord. And then the natural part of the cycle, if the this way switching back and forth is our choice, then the vertical dimension is the consequence, then the blessings of God bring me back into harmony and, and blessedness, prosperity. Again, up here, I have a choice to make. If I keep facing the Lord and maintaining my momentum in his direction, then prosperity need not bring me to pride. In fact, the Lord can afford to continue blessing me. We saw that at the end of chapter one, didn't we? But once I turn, Away from God and towards the adversary, I've switched polarity. I made the choice to go from prosperity to pride. And now the natural consequence will be to go from pride to destruction. I'm choosing in these directions. Consequences are happening in these directions. And having chosen in verse 3 to turn to the Lord, to be awakened to the remembrance of their duty, then in verse 4, they establish the church more fully. Many are baptized in the waters of Sidon, the same river, by the way, that swept the bodies of the casualties of that war down to the depths of the sea. Either way, we're going to be immersed in the waters of Sidon, either as the consequence of our wicked choices, our own spiritual death, swept out to the gulf of misery and endless woe, or immersed in those same waters now made cleansing and healing through the covenant they've made with Jesus Christ, baptized in those waters, joining the church of God. According to verse 5, 3,500 souls. Still a tiny number compared to even the casualties that they suffered in the wars against the Lamanites and Amlicites. But the church is growing and beginning to prosper again. Sadly, their turn to the Lord's side was quickly followed by a turn back, at least for some. Verse 6, the people of the church began to wax proud because of their exceeding wickedness, their refined silks, their fine twined linen. John Wesley seems to be right. This doesn't last. They were lifted up in the pride of their eyes. And verse 7, 
what a cause of affliction to Alma and the people of the church. Many of them were sorely grieved for the wickedness that they saw because something else had switched. Some other polarity had turned. Previously, we saw that the persecution was happening to the church. Yes, there were some that fought back, but for the most part, the church members were good and they were hoping to lead outsiders into a life of goodness with them. Now things have reversed. In verse 8, as the people of the church are lifted up in the pride of their eyes, as they set their hearts upon riches and the vain things of the world, as they begin to be scornful one towards another and persecute those that do not believe according to their own will and pleasure. See the process unfold? Pride and vanity leads to scornfulness and persecution of people that don't go along with what you believe. In verse 9, these great contentions, envying, strife, malice, persecution, pride, even worse than those that didn't know any better. Their pride exceeded the pride of those who did not belong to the church of God. As a result, verse 10, their, the wickedness of the church was a great stumbling block to those who did not belong to it. So the church began to fail in its progress. How could it be otherwise? The church is meant to be a stepping stone to greater righteousness, not a stumbling block that keeps people from Christ. In verse 11, the example of the church was leading unbelievers from one piece of iniquity to the next. The example of the church. Let your light so shine. It's about ready to turn the light off because the only thing that's being seen inside is not worth seeing at all. Verse 12, talk about inequality. Going against everything we saw at the end of Mosiah. Lifting themselves up with pride, despising others, turning their backs on the needy and naked. All this has happened in so short a time. And Alma has been watching it all unfold and is devastated. Can you imagine the level of responsibility he must feel? Now, it wasn't all bad news. Of course, there are still faithful followers. Steadfast and immovable, as we saw before. In verse 13, others were abasing themselves, succoring those who stood in need of succor, imparting their substance to the poor and needy, suffering all manner of afflictions for Christ's sake. And by so doing, verse 14, they retained a remission of their sins. They still had joy in spite of persecution. They looked forward to the day of the coming of Christ, the day of the resurrection of the dead, the day of deliverance of Jesus Christ. But Alma is in charge of all of them, politically and religiously. He's got responsibility for the whole group. And so he has a major decision to make, not unlike the decision that Mosiah made five chapters earlier. You see, we're coming full circle now. In verse 15, he sees the afflictions of the humble followers of God, the persecutions that were heaped upon them. He began to be very sorrowful. The Spirit of the Lord did not fail him. Important caveat. I think sometimes our sorrows and sufferings cause us to lose the Spirit. And it doesn't have to be that way. So what does this sorrowful but spiritual Alma decide to do? Verse 16, he selects a wise man. He was among the elders of the church. He gave him power according to the voice of the people. So it's still democracy ruling here. But he gave this wise and righteous man power to enact laws according to the laws which had been given and to put them in force. Verse 17, his name was Nephiha. He was appointed chief judge. 
to sit in the judgment seat to judge and govern the people. Now, 16 and 17, Alma takes off his political hat and puts it on the head of Nephiha. 18, he does not remove his religious hat. He maintains and retains the office of high priest over the church. And here's why, verse 19 and 20. This he did that he himself might go forth among his people, or among the people of Nephi, that he might preach the word of God unto them, to stir them up in remembrance of their duty, and to pull down by the word of God all the pride and craftiness and all the contentions which were among his people. Now, couldn't he have done all this before? In fact, couldn't he have done it better? Who has more leverage? Who has more power, really, the political or the religious arm? In our day, we would quickly say, oh, the political. They can establish laws. They can enforce those laws. We saw those words used in previously when it was talking about what Nephiha was able to do. But if nothing else from today, this is the great message we saw from Mosiah, turning things from kingship into a more democratic rule of the judges. You've got to be able to learn to govern yourself. I can't enforce these things. You have a Nehor enforcing priestcraft at the edge of the sword. You have Amlicide demanding obedience to his unlawful kingship. Outside authority is not what's going to change people. And Alma begins to see this clearly. If change is going to take place among the people, it cannot be imposed upon them from without. It has to emerge within them, brought about by the mighty change of heart. So let me remove even the trappings of temporal authority. If I'm wearing two hats and you're having a hard time distinguishing the two, may I take off any trappings of political power so that you know I am only here with persuasion, with meekness and gentleness and love unfeigned. It's the only thing that could possibly work. Even righteous dominion is still dominion. And at the end of the day, the only discipline that really works is self-discipline, brought about as we offer our wills to God and allow them to be swallowed up in His. It's His only hope. That's what He says at the end of 19. Seeing no way that He might reclaim them, save it were in bearing down in pure testimony against them. That's the only thing that's going to work. This is persuasion versus power. This is choice versus compulsion. This is the inner versus the outer, the change of heart versus an enforcement of behavior. It may look like an abdication of real power in the short run, but in the long run, this is the only way that anything's really going to work to teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves. Thus, in the commencement of the ninth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, Alma delivered up the judgment seat to Nephiha and confined himself wholly to the high priesthood of the holy order of God, to the testimony of the word, according to the spirit of revelation and prophecy. Isn't that what sort of forced Mosiah's hand back in Mosiah 29? Because his sons confined themselves wholly to the high priesthood, giving up political power to go serve religious missions among the Lamanites? 
not putting their trust in the arm of flesh, a military arm to fight Lamanites, or in Alma's case, a political arm to whip Nephites back into shape? This whole generation of leaders, Mosiah's sons and Alma the elder's son, this group of friends who used to go about trying to destroy the church of God, in spite of the authority of their parents, which they didn't care about at all. It's not outside authority that's going to make a difference. It's when an angel brings us face to face with our failings. And we have to grapple with our own natural man. Marvel not that all of us must be born again. Not molded by military or political power, but born again by the sweet and humble spirit of God. The sons of Mosiah were banking on that for the Lamanites. Alma the younger is banking on that for the Nephites. More importantly, the Lord is banking on that for all of us. Our only real hope is to be infused with the grace of God so that we're changed, putting off the natural man and becoming a saint through the atonement of Christ. Like I said, we've come full circle today. We began in Mosiah 29, thankful for sons of Mosiah that opted out of their earthly father's kingdom in order to build their heavenly father's kingdom. And now we've come to a point where Alma the Younger abdicates political authority in order to exercise the high priesthood of the holy order of God. The Book of Mormon would have been very different had they not made these decisions. The history of the church, scripturally and since the Restoration, is full of examples of people who gave up one set of possibilities to be able to give all they could to the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and to establish its righteousness. Everything else that matters will be added. And if it wasn't added, it probably didn't matter after all. So much depends upon those decisions that we make. Imagine if Peter had chosen to remain a fisherman. If President Nelson kept working on the physical heart instead of turning his attention to the spiritual one. If Jesus had remained a humble carpenter instead of living into his purpose as the son of Almighty God, which kingdom matters to you? I'll admit, a Justice Oaks on the U.S. Supreme Court sounds pretty awesome. But I'm so grateful for a President Oaks that laid those judicial robes aside to bear the mantle of the holy apostleship. Looking back, I laugh at what I thought at the time was a difficult decision. I'd played football my freshman year at BYU. Well, not played, I'd practiced. I was just a scrub redshirt freshman. But I went on my mission and fell in love with teaching the gospel. It's the one thing that seemed more exciting to me than catching passes. And so when I came home, I hung up my cleats. I didn't think there'd be time to both practice football and teach at the MTC, which was my real dream. And so I hung it up. It was no loss for the team, by the way. I would have had to be like Rudy and still probably wouldn't have gotten as much playing time as Rudy did anyway. They don't miss me at all. But at the time, I really thought I'd miss them that life. I thought I was laying something hard on the altar. Looking back, it was no sacrifice at all. I'd received a scholarship from a society of engineering subsidized by BMW 
and I had wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to be an architect, and I was going to study civil engineering. And I had applied for this engineering scholarship and won it. And they were going to give me $3,000 a year for my four years of college, which at the time seemed like a whole lot of money. Still kind of does. And I remember going on my mission and coming back and knowing I have no interest in building buildings. I just want to build the kingdom. So why maintain a, an engineering major when I have no intention of following through? I'll study history so I can learn religious history and have time to study religion as many classes as I could. I just want to teach the gospel. And so I wrote BMW and the American Society of Engineers a letter thanking them for the $3,000 they gave me as a freshman and asking them to withhold the other 9000 saying, I'm not, I'm changing my major. I have no intention of going into any branch of engineering unless you count engineering the conversion of God's children. I didn't think they'd count that. So I said, thank you, but keep the rest and give it to some worthy engineer out there. I got a letter back from them, really kind, almost apologetic, like, I'm so sorry, we want to give you the rest of the money. Uh, I mean, we awarded it to you from the beginning, but as you said, you're not going to be an engineer. You're not studying engineering anymore. So there's really no way that we can follow through with what we said. I'm like, of course, no, no need to apologize. I'm the one that told you to keep it. But I still laugh at the memory of one of my roommates, wonderful guy, knowing what I'd just done, he said, what? You just gave up 9,000 bucks to go be a seminary teacher? And I don't know what it was about the way he said it, or maybe just the realization that it sparked in my head. I just looked back at him and smiled and he said, oh, I've given up way more than $9,000 to go be a seminary teacher. This is only the first of many such sacrifices. Every two weeks, I will be giving up something I could have had if I'd picked a different life. Now, I am not saying that I chose more wisely than my engineering peers. They're making a difference. They're building the temple. I'm just trying to prepare people to enter it. And no one is more important. We saw that earlier. Teachers, hearers, priests, parishioners, we're all the same in God's sight as long as we're all trying to contribute our best according to the labors of our hands. But I am grateful, personally, that the Lord let me take off a few hats to let me confine myself wholly to one aspect of life that I love, and that's teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's bearing down in pure testimony of the things that the Spirit has taught me are true. I'm grateful for the privilege of doing so. I'm grateful that we all have opportunity to share our light and testimony. And I do testify it's the only thing that will really change things. The only thing that will pull down pride and change the human heart. It has to work from the inside. The outside just can't reach deep enough to the things that will make the biggest difference. Thank you for spending your time with me in these chapters. I pray that they will make a difference for each of us. Until we meet again next week, may your faith be unshaken. <laughs>